So the objectives of this lecture will be to discuss and summarize um, available evidence investigating antiviral therapies for COVID-19 and to discuss and summarize available evidence investigating pharmacologic supportive therapies for COVID-19 and to present the NIH, our National Institutes of Health, and um, some of the IDSA recommendations regarding these therapies. So since there's just a breadth of information and multitude of data coming out regarding COVID-19, and not to mention all the political drama and all the social economic implications of this pandemic, um, this lecture is meant to summarize available evidence-based uh, literature investigating pharmacologic therapies for COVID-19. So again, this is not like an in-depth journal analysis or a journal club or a detailed discussion, but more of just um, a rundown of what we know so far about these pharmacologic therapies. And again, um, I'd like to emphasize pharmacologic therapy so that we will be focused on this um, specific area about COVID-19. And hopefully we do not digress to other questions about other areas about this uh, disease such as you know, prevention, diagnostics, clinical manifestations, or the non-pharmacologic interventions. So again, um, COVID-19 is still an evolving and dynamic topic. So just, this is just like a cross-sectional view of the evidence that we have to date, and is, it is not meant to be final at this time. So hopefully this lecture can summarize some of the highlights of this academic year. As we head to another academic year, and maybe this lecture can also be used to transition incoming trainees into uh, the topic of uh, discussing uh, COVID-19. So, so this is a good uh, figure that depicts the various stages of COVID-19. Um, while there is still some considerable overlap, it can be divided into um, three distinct stages. So you have stage one, um, where you have uh, the early part of the infection, um, which is uh, which occurs at the time of inoculation and early establishment of the disease. Sorry, sorry. Okay. And um, it is um, at this time, the, for most people, this involves an incubation period associated with mild and often nonspecific symptoms, you know, such as your malaise, your fever, your dry cough. And it is during this period that SARS-CoV-2 multiplies and establishes residence in the host, primarily focusing on the respiratory system. Uh, stage two becomes the moderate part of the disease um, involving, that has like the pulmonary involvement that, we, that is uh, divided into either stage 2A or stage 2B. And the difference between stage 2A and stage 2B would be the uh, press with or without the presence of hypoxia. And lastly, your stage 3 is, your, um, is the host inflammatory response phase, um, wherein the, um, the, the patient would then enter into like this hyperinflammatory phase and resulting into some systemic inflammation and your hypercoagulable state. So, um, so um, using that slide, I pretty much um, divided some of our this lecture into three big groups of uh, pharmacologic therapies that are being investigated at this time. So this is my main reference for uh, this lecture. Um, this is the website of the American Society of Healthcare Pharmacists. Um, you can pretty much access, um, I have the link available in the notes section of this presentation. And the evidence table, their evidence table is my pretty much my big reference because they pretty much gave a good summary of all the um, best available evidence uh, that are going on uh, at this time, especially, and they also list down the, the uh, um, current trials that are already being listed in clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, um, they also update this um, the evidence table weekly with new literature that comes out every week. So it's also a good way um, for you to get updated with um, the literature that's constantly evolving. Uh, this is uh, uh, the master slide. This master slide shows the big list of all the therapies that are still that are being investigated at this time. Um, those that are in blue are uh, the ones that I've included in this lecture. So um, let's move on to, um, to the big part of the presentation. So 
we'll start first with this big group of the antiviral agents, um, uh, and uh, they are listed on this on on the right side of your of the screen. Um, you have hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, HIV protease inhibitors, and the um, antivirals that have um, that are uh, that have been approved for uh, use against influenza in other countries that may or may not have some activity against uh, SARS-CoV-2. So let's move first to this is a figure that depicts the um, uh, a good uh, summary of how of uh, of how they view where these um, uh, where uh, where exactly in the um, in the uh, life cycle of the virus that these antivirals can act? Um, I got this from uh, Sanders et al., uh, which is like a JAMA review article of the pharmacologic uh, antivirals that are being investigated. So starting with hydroxychloroquine, so. The mechanism of action against COVID-19 is not really fully understood, um, but it has been demonstrated to have some antiviral activity to some um, some of the coronaviruses. Um, its mechanism of action, they suspect it may change the pH at the cell membrane surface and inhibit viral infusion. It can also inhibit nucleic acid replication, glycosylation of viral proteins, as well as viral assembly and release. So hydroxychloroquine may be more potent than chloroquine in vitro. And it has some immunomodulatory activity that theoretically could contribute to an anti-inflammatory response in patients with viral infections. So it can work on both the um, stage one phase and also the stage three phase um, theoretically. Um, however, hydroxychloroquine has uh, more, um, as we all already know, um, the side effects of the chloroquine has like a prolonged QT interval and hydroxychloroquine being the same structure as chloroquine can also have that side effect. Um, but uh, they are assuming that hydroxychloroquine has a more favorable dose-related toxicity profile than the chloroquine. So there are various dosages recommended for uh, or being investigated for treatment of COVID-19. Um, for the emergency use authorization of hydroxychloroquine, uh, the dosing is at 800 milligrams on day one, then 400 milligrams daily for 47 days of total treatment based on clinical evaluation. Um, there are several trials that, that export that is exploring on uh, hydroxychloroquine combined with azithromycin, and the France the studies in France by uh, Gautret and Million. Um, had this uh, was the first to um, try to investigate whether hydroxychloroquine has this uh, can exert an antiviral activity to COVID-19. The their dosing in the France study used 200 milligrams three times daily for 10 days, uh, with or without um, azithromycin. And azithromycin is dosed as 500 milligrams on day one, then 250 milligrams once daily on days two to five. Um, in general, the clinical experience regarding hydroxychloroquine. Majority of data to involve uh, to date uh, involves use in patients with mild or moderate COVID-19, and there's only limited clinical data on use in patients with severe disease. More recently, this study came out um, by Mira uh, and her colleagues. Um, it was a large multinational retrospective study that analyzed outcome data for hospitalized patients with confirmed COVID-19. This data were for um, 96,032 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 between December 20, 2019 and April 14, 2020. And this, this collected data from 671 hospitals worldwide. The conclusion from this study, as um, I summarized in this table, was that after controlling for multiple confounding factors, Treatment with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide was independently associated with an increased risk of in-hospital mortality and was independently associated with an increased risk of de novo uh, ventricular arrhythmia during hospitalization. There was also evidence that the risk of de novo ventricular arrhythmia is increased when hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine is used with a macrolide. So because of this, this was a landmark study, I believe, recently that came out on May 22. And because of this, uh, because of this, there was like some, this was the big evidence that proved that there was some, that the side effects um, were, uh, were of great risk to the patient. 
And because of this, the, so a lot of the hospital um, systems in the world have already started to remove hydroxychloroquine um, from their protocols. However, just uh, yesterday, this, uh, the Lancet issued a retraction of this study, citing that, they were on, that the investigators were unable to complete an independent audit of the data underpinning their analysis. And as a result, they have concluded that they can no longer vouch for the veracity of the primary data sources until the company, uh, the investigation, the investigational company that um, handles their data, uh, that collects the data, their database is able to give them uh, a more um, uh, clear analysis uh, or allow, will allow a peer review analysis of the data. So I, this was fairly some, something that happened just yesterday. I believe so. I don't know yet how this is going to change again, how people are going to view um, hydroxychloroquine at this point. So just some take home points regarding hydroxychloroquine. Um, the NIH uh, COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel states that clinical data are insufficient to recommend either for or against use of hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19. IDSA recommends that hydroxychloroquine be used for the treatment of COVID-19 only in the context of a clinical trial. So um, with regards to using hydroxychloroquine with macrolides, NIH uh, recommends against the use of a combined regimen of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for the treatment of COVID-19, except in the context of a clinical trial. IDSA recommends that a combined regimen um, for the treatment of COVID-19 only should only be used in the context of a clinical trial. Um, and I, as of this time, NIH still does not recommend the use of any agents, including hydroxychloroquine, for pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of SARS-CoV-2 infection outside of clinical trials. Let's move on now to the next antiviral with, that held, uh, that's holding the most promise. Greg? So, yes. Sorry. One, uh, one, um, Comment raised from the audience by Dr. Sita Lakshmi. I'm just going to read her comment. This, this, the paper that you just presented is in the process of retraction from Lancet due to data impropriety. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I said. Yeah. That's what's the. Thing it out yes. today, and you did a great job. I'm so glad you pointed that out. I wanted. You're right. Everybody thought this was a landmark study, and a lot of protocols, including ours, we were getting hesitant to keep hydroxychloroquine on it. But it kind of goes to show you how much pressure there is for publication, and even reputed journals like Lancet, you know, to think that they did not have COVID-19 ICD codes or some kind of coding data. So the primary outcome was based on chartist extraction with no COVID-19 coding data. So how was that primary outcome collected? Um, so that was the biggest um, worry with this study. So thank you for pointing that out. I, I think this, you did an awesome job pointing that out. Thank you. So let's now move to, thank you, Dr. Lakshmi. So let's now move to remdesivir since that's the antiviral now that holds the most promise. So the mechanism of action of remdesivir, um, it's an adenoside nucleotide prodrug pro that is metabolized to the pharmacologically active nucleoside triphosphate metabolite after being distributed into cells. The remdesivir triphosphate then acts as an adenosine triphosphate analog and competes for incorporation into RNA chains by the SARS-CoV-2 RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which then results in delayed chain termination during viral RNA replication. In other words, it's an RNA polymerase um, inhibitor uh, or uh, competitor. Um, broad, it has a broad-spectrum antiviral activity with activity against various vir viruses, including coronaviruses, and it was even investigated for um, Ebola and even SARS-CoV-1. Uh, so in vitro, there is some in vitro evidence of activity against SARS-CoV-2 in vero E6 cells, but clinically it is yet to be still um, determined whether it does exert a clinical uh, benefit. So the optimal dosage and duration of treatment is not yet known regarding remdesivir. The emergency use authorization dosage recommended for adults and children uh, weighing 40 kilograms or more is as follows. Loading dose of 200 milligrams by IV infusion on day one, followed by um, 100 milligrams infusion daily 
um, for days two to 10. And um, the duration is dependent on wh whether or not the patient requires or not does not require mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So for patients who require invasive mechanical ventilation and or ECMO, you give the um, remdesivir uh, for a total 10-day course. And, but for patients not requiring mechanical ventilation and or ECMO, total duration of the treatment is only for five days. Um, so criteria for emergency use authorization for these uh, for using remdesivir, um, I got this from the FDA as well. Um, hospitalized adults and children with suspected or laboratory confirmed COVID-19 who have severe disease and severe disease is defined as oxygen saturation 94% or lower on room air or requiring supplemental oxygen or mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Uh, the only individual compassionate use now uh, that's being reviewed would be for uh, the use of remdesivir in pregnant women and children less than 18 years old with confirmed COVID-19 and severe manifestations of the disease. And just recently, they also, um, this trial called the NCT 04302766 um, is uh, just recently opened this week, um, wherein they are allowing compassionate use access for Department of Defense personnel through uh, treatment investigational new drug protocols. And this is sponsored by the U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command. So I guess this is also something that the um, that the VA people will also be looking into at this time. So some of the clinical evidence regarding the use of remdesivir. Um, this was the initial study in China, wherein it was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in hospitalized adults with severe COVID-19. They were um, patients were randomized who was to want to receive remdesivir or placebo initiated within 12 days of symptom onset. Uh, their primary outcome was to see whether there was, uh, what was the median time to clinical improvement, um, but they, uh, their conclusion was that the median time to clinical improvement was not significantly different in remdesivir group versus a placebo group. And there was no difference in the 28-day mortality rate as well. However, some limitations with this study was that enrollment was terminated before the pre-specified number of patients was attained, and the trial was insufficiently powered uh, to detect assumed differences in clinical outcome because of this. So uh, this then led to other more um, larger trials, and uh, there's this uh, phase three randomized open-label trial that's now ongoing in hospitalized adults with severe COVID-19, which was sponsored which is currently sponsored by the manufacturer, uh, which is Gilead, to evaluate the safety and antiviral activity of five and 10 day regimens of remdesivir. Um, and preliminary um, results of, uh, prelimi preliminary analysis of, from this trial shows that the time to clinical improvement for 50% of patients shows that there's it's around 10 days in the five day treatment group and 11 days in the 10 day treatment group. Um, showing that there's no difference really with, uh, with that and it can vouch for uh, a five-day course instead of a 10-day course of the drug. Um, this study also showed that the um, achievement of clinical recovery at day 14 occurred in 64.5% in the five-day group and 53.8% in the 10-day group. So technically there's no statistical difference between whether or not you give a shorter or longer uh, duration of remdesivir for COVID, severe COVID-19 patients. Um, the, another trial was uh, um, with the, uh, was under the NIH. This was a phase three adaptive randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, um, again, with hospitalized patients with COVID-19. This trial involves 1,063 patients, randomized one is to one to receive remdesivir, plus, of course, standard of care or placebo. And from here, uh, this was the study that was published in uh, NEJM. Um, with, and this study had found that 88.7% um, uh, of patients who had severe disease at study enrollment and the median time from symptom onset to randomization was nine days. So it does have um, some clinical benefit of uh, shortening the duration of the disease. So preliminary data analysis that included 1,059 patients um, indicated shorter median time to recovery in the remdesivir group versus the placebo group. 
And there was also, uh, from this preliminary analysis, there was also a survival benefit with Kaplan-Meier estimates of mortality by day 14 were 7.1% in the remdesivir group versus 11.9% in the placebo group. So some take-home points regarding remdesivir. Um, so far, this is the most promising direct-acting antiviral uh, currently being investigated for COVID-19. However, it's not commercially available, and you'll have to go either through the emergency use or compassionate use for it. So NIH COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel recommends the use of remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients with severe disease for now. Um, they don't recommend it yet for the treatment of mild or moderate COVID-19 outside the setting of clinical trials. So next antivirals, uh, next group of antivirals being investigated would be your HIV protease inhibitors like your um, lopinavir, ritonavir, or Calitra. And there's also Darunavir. So for regarding Calitra, um, this was a randomized, uh, the first study that was investigating this was this randomized open label trial in China by Cao and her colleagues. Um, it compared lopinavir, rotonavir plus standard of care versus standard care alone in hospitalized adults with severe COVID-19 with their primary endpoint of uh, time to clinical improvement. In their um, intention to treat population, uh, their time to clinical improvement was not shorter with lopinavir, ritonavir compared with standard of care. And they found no significant differences in reduction of viral RNA load duration of viral RNA detectability, duration of oxygen therapy, duration of hospitalization, or time for randomization to death. Um, this then led on to other more um, trials investigating Calitra. This was another trial done in China by Huang uh, and his colleagues um, that investigated lopinavir, ritonavir versus chloroquine in this small randomized study of 10 patients. Their conclusion, chloroquine was associated with shorter time to RT-PCR conversion and quicker recovery than lopinavir, ritonavir. And however, the limitations of this study, they included only a limited number of patients and the median time from onset of symptoms to initiation of treatment was shorter in those treated with chloroquine than in those treated with lopinavir, ritonavir. So again, it comes again with this debate about uh, the appropriate timing of when to give uh, these antivirus, whether it's uh, because theoretically you should be giving it um, earlier on in the course of disease, like in the same concept as um, giving antivirus for influenza, so that you can decrease the viral, um, decrease the incubation period and also the time to um, reach a heavy viral load. Um, there are now several other open-label trials uh, done in other countries outside of the U.S. that still investigates other in HIV protease inhibitors, and as most especially like the Runavir. Um, these are some of the trials that were listed, uh, that are listed currently, and they're all done in being uh, done in China or Thailand. So take-home points for HIV protease inhibitors. Some the dosage of Kalitra uh, that were given in these uh, studies, um, it's uh, 400 uh, milligrams of lopinavir and 100 milligrams of ritonavir uh, given twice daily for 10 to 14 days. Um, the NIH treatment guidelines panel recommends against the use of lopinavir, ritonavir, or other HIV protease inhibitors for the treatment of COVID-19, except in the context of a clinical trial. IDSA recommends that lopinavir ritonavir be used for the treatment of COVID-19 only in the context of a clinical trial. Um, as we will move further with the support, as we discuss the supportive therapies, there are also some other trials going on that uses uh, combination therapy with lopinavir ritonavir plus or minus other um, investigational therapies like interferon beta 1b and um, umifenovir. The, moving on to the next um, antiviral being investigated, it's um, favipiravir or brand name Avigan or um, gener other generic names that it's known for in other countries will be favilavir. So the mechanism of action, it's similar to remdesivir being an RNA polymerase inhibitor. In there is some in vitro evidence of activity against SARS-CoV-2 in infected viral e cells supported with high concentrations of this drug. It's licensed in Japan and China for now for treatment of influenza. 
So primarily, uh, it's an anti-influenza drug. Um, toxicities, there's a lot of toxicities with the use of Avigan that includes hyperuricemia, diarrhea, elevated transaminases, reduction in neutrophil counts. And there's also evidence of early embryonic deaths and um, teratogenicity of Serbian animal studies. So um, for as of this time, Favirivir is still contraindicated in women with known or suspected pregnancy. Um, there's it's also a CYP2, uh, CYP2C8 and aldehyde oxidase inhibitors that uh, and hence there would also be a lot of drug drug interactions when using this drug. So some trials that are ongoing regard that are investigating um, the use of Avigan. In the US, we have a randomized controlled open label uh, proof of concept trial. And there's also another trial um, that's ongoing with the use of favipiravir in patients with mild uncomplicated COVID-19. Um, one pharmacot uh, regarding the dosage, uh, those um, I've mentioned some of the dosages here, but one pharmacokinetic simulation model suggested that a dose of 2,400 milligrams twice daily on day one, followed by 1,600 milligrams twice daily on days two to 10 should achieve adequate favipiravir trough plasma concentrations. So you really need to use a high dose of, of this um, antiviral before um, it inserts, before it exerts some kind of effect on COVID-19. And but again, like it, you have to balance it with the risks of the toxicity toxicities that goes with the higher dose. So some take home points regarding Avigan efficacy and safety of favipiravir for treatment of COVID-19 is not yet established. Given the lack of pharmacokinetic and safety data for the favipiravir dosages proposed for treatment of COVID-19, the drug should be used with caution at such dosages. Favipiravir is also associated with QT prolongation, and some have suggested close cardiac and hepatic monitoring during treatment, as well as monitoring of plasma and tissue concentrations of the drug, and if possible, the active metabolite. Uh, moving on to another um, uh, anti-influenza antiviral is uh, umifenovir or Arbidol. The mechanism of action is that it inhibits S-protein or ACE2 um, uh, receptors, Hence, it's more of like a membrane in, uh, fusion inhibitor um, on how it exerts its effect on uh, COVID-19. It's licensed in China, Russia, Ukraine, and possibly other countries for prophylaxis and treatment of influenza. The dosage recommended for treatment of COVID-19 in China uh, for adults would be 200 milligrams orally three times daily for no more, for no more than 10 days. Uh, the dosage used are being investigated in COVID-19 clinical trials um, would be pretty much the same uh, dosing. It's not yet commercially available in the U.S., and but the and the efficacy the efficacy for the treatment of COVID-19 is not yet established at this time. Um, listed are some of the trials that are ongoing in China uh, that's investigating um, uh, Arbidol um, in. Um, for its efficacy. Uh, one trial, um, which was an open-label prospective randomized multi-center study in 236 adults, showed that clinical recovery rate was greater in those treated with favipiravir than with umifenovir. And um, another trial with that was investigating um, lopinavir, ritonavir in combination with or without uh, umifenovir found that uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, that there was better, um, uh, un, uh, there was a shorter time to conversion uh, to negative uh, SARS-CoV-2 and improvement in chest CT scans with a combination of Calitra plus Arbidol. Um, and lastly, another trial uh, that was also done in China for 86 patients found no difference in clinical outcomes between patients treated with umifenovir or lopinavir, ritonavir compared with no antiviral therapy. So again, like it's still um, efficacy and safety of using um, Arbidol is still um, questionable. Another antiviral that's also being investigated is baloxavir, um, which is an oral prodrug that is converted to uh, baloxavir. Uh, and which is an inhibitor of the endonuclease activity of a selective polymerase acidic protein. Again, um, it helps with um, inhibiting viral gene transcription. 
So the dosage from the protocol of two registered Chinese trials, um, it's 80 milligrams on day one and on day four, and another dose of 80 milligrams on day seven, uh, but not to exceed uh, three total doses. Uh, no data yet uh, to support use in the treatment of COVID-19, um, but again, it's another investigational drug. Um, and on a more recent, um, more recent uh, news, um, the Russia is now about to launch um, use of avifavir, which is a favipiravir-based antiviral drug. Uh, this, uh, this was a news article that came out just this Monday of this week on June, uh, June 1, um, wherein uh, Russia is about to launch, uh, found like good data um, with regarding a trial, a randomized uh, trial using uh, with like 330 patients that found some efficacy with uh, using avifavir. And then they will be launching it within this week to use uh, avifavir for uh, most of their hospitals there in Russia. So still more to come about but to, um, if this drug would actually be a lot more effective than what we, from, uh, from other antivirals being investigated. So, um, okay. And before we move on to the next group of therapies, anybody have any comments? No. Okay. So, uh, moving on to the next group of uh, it's the supportive agents uh, would be your supportive therapies, and I've listed all of them there. Um, we'll, I there's a lot of uh, agents that are being investigated as supportive agents for COVID-19. Um, so I've decided to just group them into three big groups um, depending on their drug class. So we'll start first with your disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or your DMARDs. And included in this list would be tocilizumab, sarilumab, and anakinra. So tocilizumab is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody specific for the interleukin-6 receptor. It may potentially combat cytokine release syndrome symptoms in severely ill COVID-19 patients. The um, initial studies that were investigating the use of tocilizumab were pretty much in China. Um, one single-arm observational Chinese trial involving 21 patients with severe or critical COVID-19 infection found rapid fever reduction and a reduced need for supplemental oxygen within several days after receiving tocilizumab. Another study, which was a retrospective observational study involving only 15 patients, um, found that, however, that clinical outcomes were equivocal for the use of tocilizumab. So um, another randomized multi-center uh, study in China um, uh, was trying to explore also on the dosing of how to give uh, tocilizumab. Initial dose in their protocol was uh, to give 4 to 8 milligrams per kg uh, infused over more than 60 minutes. And then you may administer a second dose um, after 12 hours. Um, so because of the because of some of the the evidence of these initial studies, it then launched uh, a global study in the U.S. and also pretty much in the uh, around the world that was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three trial. Um, and this trial is in, uh, titled Covacta. Uh, the, it's uh, being run by the manufacturer of tocilizumab, uh, which is Roche, in collaboration with the U.S. Health and Human Services Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Uh, the purpose of this trial is to evaluate safety and efficacy of tocilizumab in combination with standard of care compared with placebo. And the dose here uh, in this trial is to use initial IV infusion of 8 mg per kg and one additional dose may be given if symptoms worsen or show no improvement. Um, it's expected to enroll around 330 patients globally, including in the U.S. beginning in April 2020. So for some take-home points on this, uh, NIH COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel states that there are insufficient clinical data to recommend either for or against use of tocilizumab in the treatment of COVID-19. Uh, the role of cytokine measurements in determining the severity of and treating COVID-19 requires further study. Um, this is pretty much the, one of the, our, the drugs that we are using, um, that we are currently enrolled in as a trial site, um, which is Sarilumab uh, Kevstara. 
So the mechanism of action, it's also um, an IL-6 inhibitor. It's a human IgG1 monoclonal antibody that binds specifically to both soluble and membrane-bound um, IL-6 receptors. And it has been shown to inhibit IL-6-mediated signaling through these receptors. It may potentially combat cytokine release syndrome and pulmonary symptoms in severely ill patients. It was initially formulated for subcutaneous dose uh, injection at doses of 150 and 200 milligrams, and it was initially approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis in the U.S. back in May 2017 um, and several other countries as listed. So um, this is, uh, the trial is still ongoing. Um, there's a phase two, three randomized solid blind placebo-controlled study uh, being run by, by the manufacturer of uh, Cerilumab and um, in patients hospitalized with severe COVID-19. So still the results of it is still uh, pending evaluation at this time. Um, NIH, again, NIH uh, treatment guidelines panel states that there are insufficient clinical data to recommend either for or against use of Cerilumab in the treatment of COVID-19. Um, next DMARD that's being investigated is Anakinra, um, which is an IL-1 receptor antagonist protein. Um, the IL-1 levels are found to be elevated in patients with COVID-19, and Anakinra is, may potentially or theoretically combat cytokine release syndrome symptoms in severely ill COVID-19 patients by inhibiting IL-1 uh, secretion. So currently, there are no known published controlled clinical trial evidence supporting efficacy or safety of anakinra in treating COVID-19. Um, there were some small case, there was a small case series in France that, uh, that investigated the use of anakinra for nine patients and uh, found some, uh, um, some decrease in um, oxygen requirements for these patients. Um, there is currently um, uh, phase three randomized open-label multi-center trial uh, going on in Italy that's evaluating the safety and efficacy of using anakinra um, compared to standard of care in reducing hyperinflammation and respiratory distress in COVID-19, um, which is still currently recruiting at this time. Uh, moving on to the next uh, group of supportive agents will be your antineoplastic agents. Um, will be, these would include siltuximab, baricitinib, ruxolitinib, and interferons. So siltuximab is also another uh, recombinant chimeric uh, mon monoclonal antibody that, uh, that is also an IL-6 um, uh, inhibitor. Um, it's primarily used for multicentric Castleman disease in HIV-negative and HHV-negative patients. But again, being an IL-6 inhibitor, it's pretty much in the same class as tocilizumab and cerilumab that's being investigated of whether it will have some efficacy with controlling the hyperinflammatory stage of COVID-19. Um, one of the trials that's, used, uh, that's exploring uh, the use of Sylvan will be uh, the Cisco study in Italy, which is a compassionate use program, observational case control study. Um, in their study, they gave a dose of 11 mg per kg by an IV infusion over one hour, and a second dose could be given per physician's discretion. Um, this is still an ongoing cohort uh, study, and the interim analysis so far shows that 33% of the siltoximab treated patients improved. No clinically relevant change in condition was reported in 43% of patients, um, but 24% of patients worsened, including one patient who died and another with a cerebrovascular event. So other clinical trials evaluating sultuximab in the treatment of COVID-19 currently are recruiting in Belgium and in Spain, and these trials are investigating whether a single uh, sultuximab dose would be already sufficient um, for treatment. Um, next uh, would be our Jack uh, Jack one and two um, inhibitors. So the first one that's being investigated is um, primarily baricitinib or brand name Olumian. Uh, mechanism of action uh, disrupts regulators of endocytosis associated protein kinase one and cyclin G associated kinase, which may help reduce viral entry and inflammation. It inhibits Jack one and Jack two mediated cytokine release as well. So there might be apart from being Suspected to, uh, theoretically being an antiviral, it can also be used as an anti-inflammatory. 
Um, this is um, this is now another uh, major trial that the NIH is also conducting. It's an uh, which is the ATT2. Um, it's an adaptive randomized double-blind trial to compare a regimen of remdesivir alone versus a combination of remdesivir with baricitinib. Um, so patients will be randomized one is to one. Rem uh, what first group will be re receiving remdesivir and then the other group will be receiving uh, remdesivir plus baricitinib with the dosing of baricitinib to be given will be four milligrams once daily for the duration of hospitalization or up to 14 days in total. Um, so again, it's still recruiting, it's still ongoing. We still don't know the results, uh, results to be um, further evaluated once it's out. Um, and there's also another um, adaptive phase two or three uh, clinical trial also ongoing in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world. Um, the other JAK1 inhibitor that's also being investigated is ruxolitinib. Um, there's a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial also ongoing regarding ruxolitinib, and another trial that's uh, uh, ongoing the RuxCOVID DVENT, which is a more um, international or like worldwide multi-center um, study. So Take-home points in general for Janus kinase inhibitors. The NIH recommends against use of JAK2 inhibitors for the treatment of COVID-19, except in the context, again, of a clinical trial. So at present, the broad immunosuppressive effects of JAK inhibitors um, at this time outweighs the potential for its benefit. Um, moving on next will be your interferons. Um, so interferons modulate immune responses to some viral infections. In vitro studies indicate only weak induction of interferon following SARS-CoV-2 infection, and um, but there's still a possible role for interferons in prophylaxis or early treatment of COVID-19. Um, clinical trials are currently evaluating interferon beta-1A or interferon beta-1B generally added to other antivirals for the treatment of COVID-19. So first type of interferon being investigated is your would be aerosolized interferon alpha-2B which is not commercially available in U.S. However, um, early parts of the disease, uh, the Chinese guidelines had um, has uh, placed this as a possible option for treatment of COVID-19. However, limited clinical data is still present to date. Um, there was a retrospective study of 77 hospitalized adults in, uh, in China that were given aerosolized interferon alpha-2b and then comparing it with Arbidol or um, other drugs. And um, the time from symptom onset to negative RT-PCR result in throat swab appeared to be shorter in those receiving interferon alpha-2b alone or in combination with Arbidol compared with those receiving umifenavir alone. So, um, but this was a small and non-randomized uh, study. So again, the, um, um, the, the evidence is still uh, being questionable. Um, there, these are other trials that are um, uh, investigating the use of interferon beta-1A and as listed, and then they are comparing interferon beta-1A um, in, um, in comparison to being as a combination therapy versus um, hydroxychloroquine and ritonavir and other more antiviral combinations. And several more other trials using um, interferon beta-1b. Um, I think there was this, um, yes, like over the last week, I think like Dr. Ayler um, discussed this, uh, this study with us in uh, during rounds in the VA, um, which was the open label randomized uh, phase two trial that was done in Hong Kong that explored this combination re regimen of uh, Calitra plus ribavirin plus interferon beta-1b versus your control of just Calitra alone. Um, and, and this was also a study that was published in The Lancet as well. So in this subset of patients initiating treatment seven or more days after symptom onset, there was no significant difference in time to negative RT-PCR result uh, that was seen. However, there was like shorter median time from treatment initiation to negative, and there was a earlier resolution of symptoms and shorter hospital stay.
So take home points regarding interference, efficacy and safety of interference for treatment or prevention of COVID-19 is not yet established. Relative effectiveness of different interference against SARS-CoV-2 is not yet established. And NIH um, recommends against use of interference except in the context of a clinical trial. Next, uh, supportive next group of supportive therapies would be your vasodilators. Um, nitric oxide has been found to have selective, uh, is a selective pulmonary vasodilator with bronchodilatory and vasodilatory effects. And there is some in vitro evidence of direct antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-1, but not yet regarding SARS-CoV-2. In a small pilot study conducted during the SARS outbreak, treatment with inhaled nitric oxide was found to have reverse uh, to reverse pulmonary hypertension, improve severe hypoxia, and as we already know, it's also something that's being uh, that's also being used for um, ARDS in general. However, um, there are still no published studies evaluating use specifically in COVID-19 patients. Um, apoprostenol is also another selective pulmonary vasodilator that may be useful in the adjunctive treatment of ARDS. And it is suggested to be an alternative to inhaled nitric oxide um, due to its similar efficacy, lower potential for systemic adverse effects, lower cost, and ease of delivery. It can substantially reduce mean pulmonary artery pressure and improve oxygenation in uh, ARDS. However, there are still no studies evaluating use specifically in COVID-19 patients. So inhaled pulmonary vasodilators in general, the NIH recommends against the use uh, against the routine use of inhaled nitric oxide in mechanically ventilated COVID-19 patients with ARDS. However, um, they place a little bit of a disclaimer. A trial of inhaled pulmonary vasodilator as rescue therapy may be considered in mechanically ventilated adults um, when hypoxemia does not improve despite optimized ventilation and other rescue strategies. Um, and lastly, this big group of supportive therapies would be your azithromycin, corticosteroids, and serulinus. So I believe I'll skip some of the, the azithromycin parts since we discuss it much um, in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine. So corticosteroids are a potent anti-inflammatory um, and anti have anti-fibrotic properties as well, which may prevent um, an extended cytokine response and accelerate resolution of pulmonary and systemic inflammation in pneumonia. Um, observational studies have suggested that corticosteroid use in patients with SARS, MERS, and influenza was associated with no survival benefit and possible harm. Um, this was a retrospective observational single center study um, that was the initial study in China. Um, it had 201 patients, and um, they found that methyl methylprednisolone or solimedrol appeared to have to reduce the risk of death. Um, but their dosage was not provided at that time. Another uh, retrospective observational single-center study in China with uh, 46 patients found that the use of methylprednisolone was associated with improvement in clinical symptoms and a shortened disease course. Um, and again, another study in China that's uh, that's going to compare uh, use of methylprednisolone in conjunction with standard care in patients with confirmed COVID-19 infection. So in general, uh, several institutions, WHO, CDC, NIH, and IDSA generally recommend against the routine use of corticosteroids, however, because of the lack of um, evidence to support efficacy and safety. Um, this uh, for the treatment, uh, unless it's indicated for another reason. Again, there's another um, uh, paradox with, uh, with these recommendations. So NIH states that oral corticosteroids used for the treatment of an underlying condition prior to COVID-19 should not be discontinued. So if you have patients on that have adrenal insufficiency or it's being used for like rheumatologic diseases, do not discontinue their steroids or have the specialist um, assist with those um, adjustments. Um, IDSA suggests against using corticosteroids in hospitalized patients, but may be used in the context of a clinical trial again. Um, findings from observational studies suggest that for patients with COVID-19 who progress to ARDS, methylprednisolone treatment may be beneficial. However, the results for other um, corticosteroids is still questionable. 
and again, observational studies um, are not really the um, studies with the best um, um, uh, justification for efficacy. So uh, the other one is uh, another um, supportive therapy being investigated is cyrolimus, which is an mTOR inhibitor. Um, theoretically, it has a possible clinical application for the uh, reducing hyperinflammation. Um, however, there are still no studies available at this time to um, uh, suggest it to be a uh, to to be a mainstream use. Um, there are several trials ongoing that's investigating the cyrolimus uh, uh, as well. Okay. So lastly, uh, the big group, the other big group regarding therapies for COVID. Um, this another. It's a really long list. Um, but we'll touch a little bit about uh, COVID-19 convalescent plasma in this uh, last part of the lecture. So uh, COVID-19 convalescent plasma is plasma obtained from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 that contains antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 that may provide short-term passive immunity to the virus. And theoretically, such immunity may prevent or contribute to recovery from the infection. Although there is some evidence that suggests possible benefits from use of convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19, available data to date are largely from case reports or series. Confirmation from randomized controlled studies is still required. Um, these are, I listed there just some of the of, uh, studies that were done in China regarding the use of convalescent uh, plasma. Um, in general though, um, they were, these studies had like a very small uh, patient population. So again, it's hard to try to generalize it to, um, to, to a bigger population uh, at this time. Uh, there are now multiple clinical trials that were initiated in the US and other countries to evaluate use of COVID-19 convalescent plasma in various settings, such as like for post-exposure prophylaxis, and uh, treatment of different stages of the disease as listed there. And these are all available in clinicaltrials.gov. So three available pathways um, for administering or studying the use of convalescent plasma will be either through clinical trials, and then the FDA also um, started this National Expanded Access Investigational New Drug Protocol for patients with serious or immediately life-threatening COVID-19 who are not eligible or are unable to participate in clinical trials. So access will be through participation of acute care facilities under an IND that is already in place. And uh, they have a link there. Uh, I placed the link there so that you can also um, uh, explore further on how to get uh, convalescent plasma. Um, there's also a single patient emergency IND. Again, that's another pathway that's included in that link uh, that provided on how to get it for your uh, for a single patient. So patient eligibility for convalescent plasma per national expanded access treatment protocol. Patient should have severe disease or life-threatening disease, which um, with the following criteria as stated. So for donor eligibility, it should be uh, the, um, the donor should meet the following criteria. Laboratory confirmed evidence of COVID-19, complete resolution of symptoms for at least 14 days, and a negative, however, a negative result for COVID-19 is not necessary to qualify to be a donor. And if measurement of antibody titers is available, FDA recommends a neutralizing antibody titer of at least one is to 160. And a titer of 1 is to 80 may be considered acceptable if an alternative match unit of plasma is not available. Um, in general, though, the NIH um, states that there are insufficient data to recommend for or against the use of convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19. Um, currently, there are no convalescent blood products currently licensed by the FDA, and it's still regulated as an investigational new drug. So issues that require further evaluation regarding the use of convalescent plasma, um, appropriate criteria for selection of patients to receive convalescent plasma, optimal time during the course of the disease to receive such therapy, what is the appropriate dosage, and the when should we give the when should the when is the optimal timing of uh, donor plasma collection in relation to recovery from COVID-19, most appropriate methods of antibody testing 
and what is the minimum titers of SARS-CoV-2 antibody and convalescent plasma that may be associated with clinical benefits. So a lot more issues still to investigate. Um, other issues also would be the logistics of obtaining and processing, storing and distributing the convalescent plasma. Um, for right now, the FDA had already started some guidelines to it, but um, whether it can be implemented um, effectively is still um, to be known. And the potential risk associated with COVID-19 convalescent plasma therapy, as you all know, like inadvertent transmission of infectious agents, allergic reactions, thrombotic complications, um, TACO, TRALI, um, there's still a lot of side effects from convalescent plasma therapy that needs to be um, further known. Since we are in the topic of, um, of antibodies or immune-based therapies, um, there's also immune globulin that's also being investigated. Um, it's, immune globulin is basically derived from pooled plasma, and it's more like a concentrated form of uh, convalescent plasma, in other words. And um, immune globulin preparations containing antibodies specific to SARS-CoV-2 may theoretically help suppress the virus and modulate the immune response to COVID-19 infection. Um, as of now, though, we don't know, right, like from all the plasma that's being, the, from, with all the plasma that's being collected, we're not yet sure how much of those would actually contain um, COVID-19 antibodies and how much would you, how much of that plasma would you actually need to really pool together to come up with this concentrated um, immune globulin version of a COVID-19 um, IVIG. So that's still also still being investigated. So uh, they, regarding the use of IVIG, it has been used in the treatment of SARS in some studies. And um, Kao and her colleagues also uh, in China, also, there were some case reports in China that tried to investigate as well whether using IVIG would have some uh, use in, uh, would have some efficacy in treating COVID-19. Um, however, this clinical experience in China, however, is has like low um, number of patients. So again, um, generalizability of these studies might not be applicable at this time. So in general, NIH, again, does not Recommend, uh, recommends against the use of uh, commercially available IVIG, except in the context of a clinical trial. And again, as, as I said, like this current IGIV um, preparations uh, are not likely to contain SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. So again, it still needs to be investigated or maybe perhaps they just need more time to have that herd immunity develop so that we can have, uh, we can pull together a large, uh, uh, a concentrated, sample of, of uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies together. Um, and, okay. Now, as we know, there's also a hypercoagulable state that's observed in severe COVID-19. And these coagulation abnormalities uh, are far-ranging. It can be DIC, you can have venous thromboembolism, elevated D-dimer levels, high fibrinogen levels, microvascular and macrovascular thrombosis. The true incidence of the, this hypercoagulable state, however, is still not yet known, and it pretty much varies um, with different severities of the disease. And the pathogenesis of COVID-19-related coagulopathy is not yet known at this time, um, but it's suspected to be related to inflammatory response to viral infection. Um, given this hypercoagulable state, in theory, anticoagulant therapy may possibly reduce the risk of thrombotic complications and improve clinical outcomes. Um, there's just limited data from a retrospective study in China by Tang and his colleagues, um, wherein they found reduced mortality in COVID-19 patients with severe sepsis-induced coagulopathy or markedly elevated D-dimer levels six times above the upper limit of normal, who received prophylactic anticoagulation, such as your low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated uh, heparin. Um, this then launched several other, um, several more prospective uh, randomized open-label studies that are exploring the use of um, anticoagulation in treatment of patients with severe COVID-19 infection. In general, NIH um, recommends that patients with COVID-19 should receive the appropriate VTE prophylaxis, not unless it's contraindicated. Um, other organizations also recommend, such as the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis, 
American College of Cardiology and American Society of Hematology also recommends that patients with COVID-19 receive prophylactic dose low molecular weight heparin unless contraindicated. WHO also recommends either low molecular weight heparin or unfashionated heparin um, in patients with COVID-19 unless there are contraindications. So um, these um, institutions pretty much um, advocate the use of prophylactic, again, prophylactic dose of, uh, of your anticoagulants, uh, but whether or not they would need therapeutic dosing, it's still being investigated. And lastly, regarding thrombolytics, uh, tissue plasminogen activators, uh, there are several case series, again, in, done in China um, that initially saw some benefit with using TPA. And currently, there's an open-label randomized trial that's exploring TPA as well, and um, results are still to be um, determined. Um, TPA, or thrombolytics in general, is uh, proposed to be just as a salvage treatment, um, but not the first-line treatment. Several institutions like Beth Israel, uh, University of Colorado, and Denver Health are currently testing this um, this approach of using TPA as a salvage treatment for COVID-19 patients. Uh, preliminary findings from the first few cases reported an initial but transient improvement in, P in uh, PF ratio. But again, this is still preliminary. We still have to wait for the final results. And, and um, NIH um, states that current data are insufficient to recommend for or against the use of thrombolytic agents. Um, except outside the setting of uh, outside the setting of a clinical trial, but again, can be considered for if in the context of a clinical trial. And the same with the American Society of Hematology states that treatment of the underlying pathology is paramount in COVID-19 patients with coagulopathies. Supportive care should be individualized, and standard risk factors for bleeding should be considered. Okay, so, so there's still a lot more therapies that are still being investigated out there. Um, but these are the major ones that uh, that are um, that um, that I think are that I thought were good to like include in this, this lecture. Okay, and that's pretty much the end of my lecture. And now I'm opening for the floor for discussions, questions. <laughs> 